Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. There it is. Good morning. One of my favorite lines of that song we just sang. It's in the second verse. It says, my sin was great, your love was greater. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Because uh, there's a lot of times in my life where I feel like my sin overwhelms the grace of God. And uh, just to have that, uh, that memory. And there's a spot in the scripture where Paul even goes to God begging him to take away this thorn in his flesh. And God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is, how awesome is it that we get to serve a God that takes that stance with us? That's uh, pretty amazing. Um, we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up. Uh, I know you already heard it on the announcement video, but we're going to say it again. We've got the trunk or treat happening this Friday night. We're excited about that. We're, I've heard rumors of, of Batmobiles and mystery machines. I've heard rumors of uh, people being in costumes that we can't wait to take pictures of. Um, I've heard uh, a lot of great things that are, are coming uh, for this Friday night, and we're really excited to be a part of it. And you can be a part of it, too. You can still sign up to have your car and decorate your trunk and be a part of it that way, or you could bring donated bags of candy. We still need lots of candy to pull this off because we expect that we're going to have lots of kids coming through this line, so, and, and not, not only a few adults. Uh, so uh, if, we, if you would partner with us in that as well, uh, we're excited about that. And then we also have uh, coming up uh, next Sunday, uh, November 1st, our, first off, how crazy the next Sunday is November 1st, uh, but we have our Catch the Vision lunch. Um, this is for you if you are, uh, have you recently started coming to Lakewood, or if you've been coming for a while and you just want to know more about the vision, more about uh, where we're going and what we believe, uh, this is a place where you can come and ask questions, and uh, we will kind of take you through our process. Uh, and then finally, uh, another thing we're really excited about is next week, we're going to be kicking off our life groups. Um, we're very excited about this. They're going to take place at 9 a.m. They're going to be in the four classrooms that are part of our new, the new building over there. And uh, you'll see a big green flag up that'll tell you where to enter. It'll be, it'll be a great time. So please plan on uh, being a part of that as well. We're excited. But now we get to do the thing that we're really excited about. We get to open up the Word of God. We get to talk about something that God has told us, and we get to... Uh, in humility, try to apply that to our lives. Uh, it's a fun thing we get to do every week where we just get to let God talk to us. And so uh, what we've been going through is this series called Big Faith, this idea that the church is supposed to be known as a place where love happens and where faith is in abundance. And uh, it's one of those things that uh, Paul kind of, or the author of Hebrews kind of lays out that we are supposed to be known as a people of faith that Paul lays out in Romans when he talks about how the church is known for their faith across the world. And that's what we're called to as the church. And it really stems from the question, though, when we ask ourselves what, when we're looking at big faith, it stems from the question of what does faith really look like in the life of the Christian? What does it look like to be a people of faith? Because we can say that word a lot. We can say it to the point where maybe it loses some of its meaning, but whenever we get to the point of finally asking the question, what does genuine faith look like? And that's what we've been unpacking now for the last three weeks. So in week one, we talked about Abraham and Sarah, and we said that genuine faith is not blind, but it's reasoned. Remember? And how we talked about how Abraham and Sarah both reasoned that God would remain faithful, and then they stepped into faith. 
In week two, we talked about Joshua and Rahab, and we said that genuine faith is acted out in our lives, even in small ways. We said that Joshua and Rahab didn't do huge things, but they did things that echoed through eternity. They did things that caused ripples that go throughout eternity and that you don't know the power of your small acts of faith. And then last week, we talked about Gideon. And we, we addressed the idea that said that Gideon's, or that genuine faith doesn't mean the absence of fear, but willingness when faced with faith and fear to choose to obey faith. So it's, it's reasoned. It's acted out. It's, we, it's chosen instead of fear. And so today we're going to continue our quest by talking about one of the more challenging and I I think frustratingly, more tragic parts of Scripture. We've been looking at people listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's, uh, that's where we're going to get our next person from as well. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Now, uh, the author has, at this point has gone through a lot of these people, and he's talked about their great acts of faith. And at the very end, he just mentions a ton of them right in a row. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. If you've got it on your phone, get your phone out. Read along with us. Uh, also, if you have our app, all of the verses and points and outlines and fill in the blanks, it's all there inside our app. On, in the Sunday section. Uh, but here we go. In Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32, it says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So last week we talked about Gideon. And this week we're going to talk about another judge. This is a judge by the name of Jephthah. Everyone say Jephthah. If you didn't know him coming in today, you're going to know him as you leave, and you may not like him very much. But Jephthah. Um, this is one of those hard passages of Scripture. Um, but it's also one of those things that Jesus used, God uses difficult passages to teach us and to take us through things. And so we're going to boldly go into this together. And we're going to go through asking the question, what is God trying to say? And not necessarily what God's trying to say to me exactly at this moment, but what is God trying to say to the world through, through all of this? What's God's big, big picture here? And so before we do that, though, because to do that requires a couple things. The first is willingness to dive in. The second is humility uh, to learn. And the third is courage to apply. Uh, so let's, let's stop and let's ask God to guide us through these things today. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Father, I ask that you would speak today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the ability to open your scripture and to see uh, your heart, and to learn about you, and to learn what pleases you. And uh, God, I ask that you would help us uh, to, to have the humility to see you at work in this. But Father, I also ask that you would give us the courage to take the lessons that you want to teach us, and to apply them to our lives, and to step into our faith. Holy Spirit, please take the words that uh, I'm going to speak today, and uh, God, I ask that you would put feet to them, that you would implant them in the hearts of your people, and that 
that they would go with us and that we would have a thirst for your word, God, like, a, like in a desert we would thirst for water, that we would thirst for your word. God, please give us that passion. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. There are times where I've told my children to do things, and they don't do it. And if you're in here and you're a parent, I know what you're thinking. No, never. I have four children, and they're awesome, but they're also ornery. And sometimes we will have things where we tell them to do something, and for whatever reason, they choose not to do it. And it's funny because there are times where, specifically with my boys, we would say something like, hey, guys, you need to clean your room. Uh, there are toys on the ground, and you know, as a parent, you look in the room like, I could do it in 10 minutes. It's, it's that easy of a job. But we tell the boys, hey, clean the room. You've got an hour. Just clean the room. And uh, 30 minutes goes by, we come back, and surprisingly, the room's dirtier than whenever we left it. And we'd say, guys, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, just clean your room. And then we come back, 45-minute mark, and it's, it's the exact same. They're just talking, they're playing, they're doing stuff, they're getting distracted. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, Dad, I got distracted again. I said, stop getting distracted, do what you're told to do. And then we come back at the hour mark, and that's where, that's where the frustration comes. That's where we're like, well, I'm going to bring in a trash bag and throw all your toys in the trash if you don't get this done. You know, all these anger things that you feel. And there comes a part to where you're just kind of like done, Right? Um, that's a very real feeling, especially with my kids at the age they are right now. That's a feeling that I can, I can feel. If you, if you are a parent, if your kids are already out of the house or anything like that, maybe you can remember back to times where that was kind of the frustration, uh, but fill in your own blank with the scenario. Um, Israel's kind of like that. And in the book of Judges, we see this cycle happening over and over and over again where Israel continually doesn't do what they've been told to do. And it's almost funny if it's not so tragic. Because here's what happens. Israel loves God. Then Israel starts to get involved with the culture surrounding them. They start worshiping idols. They forget the Lord is their God. And then God lets them have it. He says, fine, you want that? Then go for it. And they eventually get overtaken by another kingdom. And then they're oppressed for a while, and then they go back and they say, God, God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, please forgive us. And God says, okay, and he sends a judge in. And then the judge comes and he does these incredible actions that puts Israel back into right standing with God and in the land, and everybody's good. And the judge lives a long life, and then the judge dies, and then they go back to worshiping idols. And it happens over and over and over again. It's predictable. And this is where we kind of pick it up. We're back in the book of Judges. Israel has gone through the cycle again. They're back to where they are being completely overrun. And so we're going to pick that up in Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 6. It says, The people of Israel again, again, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. 
So the Israelites do evil again. And God gives them over to be oppressed by the surrounding kingdoms. And in keeping with the cycle, now they're going to get to the part. What's the next step? They cry out to God, right? So now let's, let's check out their cry. In Judges 10.10, 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because you or because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. It's almost like they're reading a script. That's what, what they say. Whenever we screw up, whenever it gets bad, this is what we say. We've sinned against you, God, because we've forsaken We've forsaken the worship of you, and instead we've been worshiping the Baals. It's kind of a routine that they have. But then God responds in a very, very different way. Let's pick it up here in verses 11 through 14. The Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? Really quick, this reminds me of like whenever you go into your kids and they haven't done what they're supposed to do and you finally enforce like, okay, fine, here's the punishment. And they're like, no, please give us another chance. Like, did I not come in 10 minutes ago? Did I not come in 20 minutes ago? It's kind of like what God's doing. He says, did I not do all this? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and you served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods for whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. My goodness. God says, I'm done. I've saved you time and time again. And every time you go back to these gods, every time you just, you, you're good for a second, but then you go right back there again. So you know what? Let all the other gods that you worship, let them save you this time. And this is the way that Israel responds. It's in verse 15 of chapter 10. The people of Israel said to the Lord, and please notice the difference between this reaction and their first reaction. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And then he became impatient over the misery of Israel. You see the difference between the first one and the second one? It's, it's subtle, but it's there. The first seems to say this, hey God, we're broken, fix us. But the second reaction acknowledges that God is under no obligation to fix them. It's like they're saying that now, it's not that they want to be fixed, but they, they want God. Even if it means they continue in their suffering. But also, see their actions here too, because it's not just what they say. See, they say this, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, meaning, God, we accept your punishment. We still want you. But only please deliver us. They still ask for the deliverance. But then, here's this. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. With no, like God already told them, I'm not doing anything. They come to God and they say, God, we want you. Please, though, please still save us. But we want you. And then they put away their foreign gods and they begin to serve the Lord. Not because they were delivered. Not because they wanted God to deliver them. But because they wanted to be close to God. They go to God with an understanding that this goes much deeper than their current situations and comfort. 
There's a bigger issue at stake here. And so that's why our first point of the day is this, that really the most genuine desire of faith, when you take faith of why we have faith, it's not faith so that we can be saved from hell. It's not faith so that we can have a better life now. It's faith because we want to be close to God, which is the first point, that the most genuine desire of faith is to be close to God. We want to be close to God, not because of the stuff he gives us, but because we want to be close to God. We don't serve God because he gives us our better life. We don't serve God because we're looking for our best life now. We serve God because we want to be close to him. To come to God and say, God, and this is the the problem that we have. This is the problem that I have. But sometimes I come to God and I say, God, I want you because I want you to give me blank. God, please give me blank. And for me to do that, it's really for me to worship and desire whatever that blank is and not God. I see God as the means to get what I want. But when we say, God, I want you, whether or not I have comfort, whether or not I have healing, whether or not I have deliverance, I want to be close to you for the sole purpose of being close to you. That's the act of faith that we're called to, and it's the act of faith that we see the beginnings of in the Israelites in this passage. The understanding of what they're really asking God for and where their priorities actually are. And scripture says that God then becomes impatient with their suffering. And how great would that be, right? If God came up to you and says, you know what, I'm impatient with your suffering now, so we're going to change something. That's a good thing, right? That's a great thing. I don't know if you have like student loans or hospital debts or anything, but if someone came up to you and said, hey, I'm kind of impatient with your hospital debts or your student loans, so we're going to do something about that real quick. That, that's a good news situation, right? God comes to them and says, hey, um, I'm impatient with your suffering. And then this is where Jephthah enters the picture. In, in Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we have Jephthah. We know that he is a mighty warrior, right? He's strong. He can fight. We got that, right? We also know that he's the son of a prostitute, meaning that his dad went to see a prostitute and she got pregnant. And so this is how Jephthah came to be in his father's house. But Jephthah's dad had a wife who had multiple sons. And so the sons eventually kicked Jephthah out of the house saying, listen, you're the son of a prostitute. You don't get to share in our inheritance. You're not really a part of the family. And so they kick him out. And so he goes to the land of Tob, and there it says a band of worthless fellows surround him. They come and follow him. What basically that means, the worthless fellows, it's basically that Jephthah becomes the leader of a band of outlaws. And I know what you're thinking. This is the guy that God's going to use to do good things. Right? How often do we do this where we look at people and we say, okay, listen, God's going to pick something, somebody like me. The Pharisees did this all the time. God's going to come and pick people like us, but we don't look out. Sometimes we see other people like they might be beyond salvation. And whenever you look at Jephthah, son of a prostitute, 
a guy who was a good fighter, he's known for his fighting ability, but now he's leading this band of outlaws over in Tob. You don't look at that guy and say, this is the guy, this is the mighty warrior of God that he's going to use, but this is the person that God calls. So we pick it up in 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 6. And they said to Jephthah, so they, they're already going into battle now. They're about, to, they're about to be in war. And they come to Jephthah and they say, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. So Jephthah is this strong and mighty warrior. He's known as a strong and mighty warrior. And they find themselves in need of what? A strong and mighty warrior. And so they go to Jephthah and they say, Jephthah, please come and lead our armies. But Jephthah says to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That's why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Which is really interesting because that so closely mirrors the reaction that we just saw between Israel and God. Where they come to God and say, God, please save us. And God's like, I, you don't even get it. And then they come back in a more humble stance and said, no, this, we want you to be the Lord of our, of our lives. We want you to be the king of your people. And so with Jephthah, they come to him. He's like, guys, you kicked me out. And they come back and they say, but we want you to lead us. We want you to step back in. Uh, they come in in a different position. And Jephthah is known as being a mighty warrior, but that's really interesting though. Because what happens in verses 14 through 20, we're not going to read them, but I'll tell you real quick. What happens in verses 14 through 20 is that Jephthah doesn't just pick up an army and go attack. He picks up a pen and writes a letter. He writes a note to the king and he says, what's your deal? What are you doing? He sends messengers to the Ammonite king asking him why he's choosing to fight them. And the Ammonite king says, hey guys, you're living on our land. That's why we're fighting you. So get off our land and we can have peace. But you're on our place, so get off or we're going to fight. And so then Jephthah does something that's really cool. He gives a three-part <clears throat> reasoning why the Israelites actually are the owners of the land. He gives histor a historical response. He says, the land was never yours. We won it uh, from the Amorites by right of conquest. They attacked us and we won the war, so rightfully it's ours. He then hits it from a theological stance. He says, in allowing us to win the battle, God gave us the land. But then he turns the tables on the Ammonite king and said, if your God did the same, wouldn't you say the same thing? Because the Ammonite kings would have. And then he hits it from the legal precedent. And he says that, uh, he, says there, there were, he basically says there's a legal precedent beforehand that the past kings of all these places always acknowledged that this was our land. So he gives a really a really well thought out reasoning as to why that there should be no beef between them. And you know what the Ammonite king does? He says, so what? <laughs> and so they have a battle. The Ammonite king doesn't listen and they go to battle. Jephthah is following the word of the Lord. He's gifted by the Lord as a warrior. He's called to be the leader of this army. But then Jephthah does something next that's really troubling. We're going to pick that up in Judges eleven twenty nine. 29. 
says, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. The spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And this is the troubling part. The vow says this. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. He tells God that he's going to offer him a human sacrifice. It's troubling. It's troubling for modern readers. Uh, But this is one of those rare instances where it's actually troubling for the original reader as well. This is a troubling vow that he has made. And so the question that we kind of first come to is, why would Jephthah make this vow? He's got the might of the Lord on him. Things are going the right way. God has said that this is going to work out, and yet he stands in there and he makes this vow. And the question is, why? And i got a couple reasons. The first I would say is this. We already know the problem that the Israelites are facing. The problem is cultural assimilation meaning that they were told to clear out the promised land because God wanted to create a place where his people would stand firm and they would be led by God and through that he would bring about the redemption of the world. We know this, but they didn't do what they were told to do and so the Israelites continually over and over again bow the knee to foreign idols, right? And we see that this has not left Jephthah untouched. Because something that we see often over and over again in, in uh, the pagan societies that are surrounding them is that they do these things called human sacrifices. Because in the pagan religion, if I want to get a God to do what I want him to do, I have to impress that God. And what would impress that God more than me saying, I will offer up a person, I will sacrifice a person if you will do what I want. He lived surrounded by this. And we see Jephthah right now has that culture alive in his own heart. But we also see this, that he does not know the God that he is serving. He's ignorant to the law of God. Which is really interesting because when we go back, the reason we talked about that whole reason response to the king of the Ammonites, when we go back to that, we see a guy that has studied the history of Israel that has studied the, all the, everything that the Israelites have gone through. And so we know that at some point he picked up the book of Deuteronomy to be able to understand the history of the Israelites. But he must have missed this part because in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29, it says, When the Lord your God cuts before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, listen to this, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? God already gives them this warning, but then he even goes more specific. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that, is, that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. This was a piece of scripture that Jephthah would have had the opportunity to read. He was ignorant to the law of God. So what I get at the beginning is this, that Jephthah doesn't have an excuse here. 
He had an understanding of the history of Israel. He had access to the law of God, but he did not know the law of God. But we continue to read in Judges chapter 11, verse 32. So, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. So he's been victorious. And he comes to his home. And behold, his daughter came out to meet with him with tambourines and with dances. She was, only, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. And he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. So the daughter says, Okay. Give me two months, I'll go out to the woods and I'll mourn the life that I would have had, but then I'll come back and you can complete your vow. And that's exactly what happens. So the next question I have is, why did he follow through with it? This is further evidence that he did not know the heart of the God that had been working through him. Because God makes it very clear that this is not something that pleases him. And if we can get anything from this, let's start here. It's very important to know God. It's very important to know God because he didn't understand what God valued. And so he put the values of the culture that was surrounding him on God instead of interpreting the values of culture through the filter of God. He didn't take his culture and put it up to Scripture. Instead, he changed his mind on who God was based on what he'd experienced in the culture around him. And man, if we don't do the same thing. I'm not saying that I'm going to go home and burn my daughter on a fire to God. I'm not, I'm not that far. But there are times where I value things that are not important to God. There are times where I put things that are increasingly important to God on the trash heap, and I take stuff from the trash heap that should be on the trash heap, and I put it up on the altar. He assumed God's character based on the experiences with the wisdom, with the culture that surrounded him. And so the next point I have for the day is this, that when we give more thought to our culture than Scripture, we are in danger of knowing God only as we perceive him and not as who he really is. And that's a big danger. That's one that we experience today. Jephthah's story is a tragic story. And then I look and I ask the other question, though. Why on earth is he included in the Hall of Heroes in Hebrews chapter 11? I don't get that. Why is his name a part of that? I mean, yes, he was able to deliver him and God did use him, but why on earth is he included as a part of that? So I go back to Hebrews 11.32 and I read it one more time. It says, what more shall I say? For the war, for time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets. But then I look at the people that are surrounding Jephthah on this list. Gideon was fearful and weak. He struggled to believe God. Barak was timid and fearful again. Uh, look at, <clears throat> excuse me, Samson. Man, if you can't find a fault in Samson, you're not reading his story. Samson is prideful. He's arrogant. He's brash. 
And then we see Jephthah, who is ignorant. He's willingly ignorant. So what does this tell us? It says that God works through flawed and unlikely people to do his will. That doesn't make what Jephthah did right. It says the truth, that God uses flawed and unlikely people to do his will. And that's interesting, because right now I'm standing up on this stage and I'm looking at it, you guys, and I'm seeing a lot of flawed and unlikely people. So as you leave today, you know, someone says, you know, what did you guys learn at church today? We're like, oh, well, our pastor told us that we're flawed and unlikely. Um, <laughs> but that's the truth, because for God to do in you what he has planned to do in you, you're the unlikely candidate for that. You are flawed, and yet God still wants to use you. Timothy Keller says it this way, that God can still write straight with crooked pencils. I love it. Because <laughs> I'll stand up here right now and tell you, I'm a crooked pencil. <laughs> and so are you. So when we look at these stories, hopefully we can walk away with the understanding that God can use these people, these flawed people, if God can use them, if God can do those things through Samson and Gideon, if God can do these things through Jephthah, who's incredibly flawed, if God can do that, then maybe, just maybe, he can do stuff through me too. If I'm this far gone, if I am this flawed, maybe God can use me too. And the truth is that God can. Because you're flawed, you're unlikely, but you're also precious and you're called. So if God can work through them, he can work through us. But as God works through us, we need to keep this in mind because this is another spot where Jephthah went off the rails. That we must never mistake God's working through us as evidence that he has done working in us. God is continually working in us. And he uses us as we are flawed but he calls us to righteousness. So a couple things there. Don't wait to arrive at righteousness until you, before you allow God to use you. But don't stop trying for righteousness because God is using you. It's a relationship that continues to build and grow and move. We are all unfinished works in the hands of the master craftsman who is continually molding us for his purposes. And if the most genuine desire of faith is to be close to God, then hopefully we can then make true what we're called to in Luke 10, 27. See, that's the verse we've gone over a couple times, but it says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Meaning that with all of, that's with all of our passion, with all of our vigor, everything we have, with all of our soul, to be the core of who we are is pursuing God with all of our strength. That we take that passion and we take that soul and we put feet to our faith and we step into action. And then we love the Lord our God with all of our mind. That we desire to reason that God is who he says he is. But then we take steps to know who God says he is. We don't just assume we know who God says he is, but we open up his word and we study it and we find out the true character of God is written on the pages of scripture and then we get what we think about God from here instead of what the culture tells us Jesus, God, should be. 
Because like Jephthah, we have no excuse. We have every opportunity to come to a greater knowledge and understanding of God that will be made complete. And hear this. We have every opportunity to understand and know God, to learn God, until he comes back and teaches us, teaches us of who he is from his own mouth. There will be a day where we get to sit before God and learn about him from his own mouth. But right now he puts this in our hands. So yes, experience matters, absolutely. But let's love God with everything we have, including our mind, including our strength, including our soul. So that way we can be used by God. We can have God work through us, but we can also enjoy the stretching breaking sensation of God working in us. And then God can take the unlikely, crooked pencils that we all are, and he can draw his straight lines of his will with us. That's the call of the church. That's the step of faith. And it's a journey that is long and that none of us are done with. So let's continue to walk. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, God, um, I ask that as we kind of still unpack some of Jephthah's story, uh, Lord, that you would uh, be with us and that you would speak to us and convict us and help us to move. God, I ask that you would help us to come uh, to grips with how flawed we are and that that would draw us into your embrace. God, thank you for calling us to be your children. Please help us to have the faith to acknowledge our guilt and step into your purpose. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.